we had floated the river before, and it wasn't a big deal. It was very enjoyable and slow-paced, or at least it was the time before. This time we got on the river with our uh, inflatable tube, and we started to float. And immediately I started to recognize that we were moving quicker than we had the last time. And as we continued down, things got even quicker. And I don't know what happened if I hit a rock, a tree limb, or if I just shifted my weight and flipped over. Regardless, I found myself in a moment at the bottom of the river, dragging along the rocks. It was a scary moment, one of those moments that you start to question, like, what's going to happen next? What will happen if I don't make it out of this? Can I make it out of this? And just all of these thoughts come uh, down on you in those moments of pressure. I was feeling the water swirling around me, and it was faster at my feet than it was uh, in my shoulders, and I was having some problems getting my footing. Eventually, I did get my footing, and as I did, I pushed off the bottom, and I broke to the surface, and I came up gasping for air. As I did, I was still being carried down the river uh, with, the, with the current, and I couldn't get away. Eventually, there was a spot where the, the current wasn't as strong, and I navigated myself and made my way to the side. And when I made my way there, I gathered my inner tube, and I went down a little further and got back in the river. The reason I bring that up, though, is that I recognize that many people have that same experience. Uh, physically, perhaps you've been in that place, but emotionally and spiritually, for sure, you've been in that place where the culture seems to be dragging you along and whatever device you have just isn't good enough. And you catch yourself from time to time at the bottom of the river dragging, hoping, hoping beyond hope that you can find your footing and push off and get air. And then what? That doesn't mean the ride's over. Then what? That's where we find ourselves in the study with Elijah. That the cultural trend is pushing him down the river. And what his flotation device is matters. And so what Elijah decides to do is get on ship. His ship is worship. Joel Farver, who's our worship pastor, he uses this phrase often, and it's called raw, real authentic worship. And that's where we are. We need to be raw. Real, authentic worship as we get on this ship because this is treacherous and people can get hurt and wounded and die because of what is happening around us. We can get swept out and go to bad places. So what, what our flotation device is matters. Is yours a ship and is it worship? Giving it to God because on that ship, God's in control. It's not about us. It's all about him. He's the navigator, and he knows how to navigate that stream way better than we do. And we have to give it over to him in that place of worship, real, authentic worship. Would you be willing to get on that ship today? Just with your life, would you be willing to say, okay, God, I I am willing. And maybe you say, I've already been on that ship. ship. Cool. Would you continue to be on that ship? Would you be willing to do that today? Elijah was a man like us. I, 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 like, I like this passage and I like this study because, like, what is great about Elijah? Well, n- nothing really, 
but he meets this extraordinary God who loves him and walks with him. And as Elijah sees where God is at work and follows him in that place, he goes against the current and he brings others with him to life. I love that. I want that to be my story, and I hope it's your story. I hope it's our story. I hope this community is, finds its way to life because they choose to get on a ship that we're on. That's what I hope. This is our memory verse. If, uh, if you're looking for that, go ahead and write this down. Maybe highlight it in your Bible. It's James chapter 5, verse 17, and it says this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And you know, when, when I remember one of the first times I read that, or at least one of the first times it stuck in my brain, I thought, man, Elijah's kind of mean. <laughs> like, that seems rude. Just to like, God, don't let there be any rain. That's too bad for these people. It, it just at first blush, it seems that way. But we're going to get into it in just a moment and see why that was so significant and why that was actually being obedient to God. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we love you and we thank you and praise you. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be exalted and lifted up in the things that we do and in the things that we say. And, and Lord, as we study this life of Elijah, we don't want to be like Elijah. We want to be like you. And so, Lord, we are called to that. And even I think of the words of Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The goal is to imitate Christ. And so, Lord, help us to see you at work in Elijah's life. This ordinary person who serves an extraordinary God. And Lord, for us today, I ask that we would get on the right ship, that uh, we wouldn't hold on to our own (laughs) lame flotation devices that have no ability to get us through this life, but rather, Lord, that we would get on your ship, that we would get on the worship, and that we would, in a real, authentic way, live lives that would be obedient and in love with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, to tell Elijah's story, we have to start way back before Elijah. And we have to start with the children of Israel. And as they came out out of slavery and toward the promised land, they were led by a man named Moses. And Moses, in leading this people, had a lot to deal with. And part of the reason is they had been immersed in a culture that was polytheistic. Polytheistic is many gods. So they worshipped many gods in this culture. And so there was a sun god, and there was a god of death, and a god of the afterlife, and there were god of the harvest, and god of travels, and there were all of these gods. And they are, they are immersed in this culture, and it's, it's the norm, right? It's, it's normative to them. That's what you do. Hey, if you, want, um, if you want a good harvest, you worship this God. If you want, well, I don't know, the sun to come up tomorrow, you worship this God. If you want life, you worship this God. If you want something bad to happen to your neighbor, worship this God, right? Like there's all these different gods for them to worship. And that's what, they, that's what they're brought up in, and that's how their mind thinks. And so as he's taking them out of Egypt and into the promised land, the Lord speaks to uh, Moses, and he writes these things down. We call that the Torah. And uh, one of the areas and that, uh, that Moses has and shares with the children of Israel is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And the significance of that is, is layered. Uh, one of the pieces of it is this, that uh, it's not just that God is unified within himself, but that God is one. He's above all. He's one. It's God. He's first. There's nothing is above him. In other words, there is this idea of if you want to harvest, you go to Yahweh. You don't go to this other God. If you want uh, blessings, you don't go to uh, this Egyptian God. You go to Yahweh and see him because he is one. He is above all. He's one. And so Moses takes the children of Israel out of Egypt toward the promised land, a land called Cana. It's a land uh, with uh, milk and honey, and the, the fruit is ginormous, and the vegetables are ginormous, and it's a lush land. And Moses, because of his own sin, can't lead them into the promised land, and a new leader emerges, and his name is Joshua. And Joshua, in leading the people, um, is, is one, overwhelmed, and God speaks to him. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. I'm with you. And Joshua leads into the promised land. And as he goes into the promised land, uh, he comes up to a city called Jericho. Jericho is a huge city with these walls that they could have chariot races on. Ginormous city, impenetrable. What will they do? Well, Joshua meets uh, an angel and asks the angel, are you for us or against us? And the angel says, neither. I'm not for you or against you. I'm for God. I serve, I serve him. Like, that's a great place to be, but it's also intimidating for Joshua. And Joshua recognizes right away that he needs to serve the Lord and that they are going into this land to serve the Lord. They're bringing light into the darkness, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So as they're going into, uh, into Jericho to fight it, Joshua makes some statements. And one of the statements is that this city is going to be a city of destruction for the Lord. It's separated for, for God, and it's supposed to be destroyed, and everything in it, with very few exceptions. And those things are supposed to come out, and they're dedicated to the Lord, including uh, Rahab and her family. Other than that, this city is destroyed. And in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26 Joshua gives this curse to whomever would choose to rebuild this city. And basically, they're going to lose their children, their sons, in the rebuilding of this city. Well, the children of Israel uh, take the promises of God at his word, and they inhabit the land. And the tribes spread out through the land, and it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. It's not always easy, uh, but God is faithful. And in God being faithful, they decide to come to this place and say, you know what? Everyone else has a king. Why can't we have a king? Wouldn't it be great if we had a king? We should have a king. God, why don't you give us a king? And God says, well, I am your king, but I'm not going to fight you over this. If you want a king, I'll give it to you. And so Saul becomes a king. Saul's reign, or Saul is head and shoulders above everyone else. He's the obvious pick. And he becomes king. He doesn't do what's right and uh, he is cut off from the kingship David takes over. David becomes king, and he is a man after God's own heart and leads the children of Israel in worship and in victory. But there's blood on David's hands because David chooses to 
uh, sin. And he sins against the Lord by killing Uriah the Hittite and taking Uriah's wife as his own. Because he has this blood on his hands, he's not allowed to build the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. That's given to his brother, Solomon. And so Solomon takes reign. And when Solomon comes in, there is this time of peace. There is a time of prosperity that Israel hasn't known. And then Solomon dies. And his son, Rehoboam, takes over. Rehoboam seems to be a good king, at least initially. And he's confronted with an issue. Some things had happened to the tribes in the north. And they felt put out. They felt like the burden was too hard, and they asked Rehoboam to reconsider the situation, and Rehoboam says, give me three days. They go away. Rehoboam goes to the elders, those who had served under his father Solomon, and said, hey, what's, what's going on? They, he, they get an, an, a wise answer from them. He then goes to his peers, and he says, hey, what do you guys think? And they said, too bad. That's my paraphrase. That's not exactly how they say it, but... They said, too bad. Too bad for them. Let them know you're king. And he takes the advice of his peers and not the advice of the elders. And what happens is the kingdom is torn in two. There is a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Simeon has kind of been engulfed by Judah in the south. Uh, The tribe of Benjamin is also there. And the Levites in the south. And the rest are in the north. And the rest in the north get a king Jeroboam. Jeroboam comes up with new ways to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And that is the story of the kings that follow in the northern kingdom. And we are going to follow that succession down to the seventh king. The seventh king is not just wicked, but he enjoys it. He likes it a lot. He's also uh, very pragmatic in his approach. And this is what I mean. In the north, they started to worship Baal and Asherah again. They liked Baal. Baal was this god of fertility, and one of his primary jobs was to send rain into the land. And the people loved that. And it was lush, and it was green, and it was good to them. And they they were having good harvests. And... Uh, Ahab continues to uh, encourage that and to grow it. In fact, this is a Canaanite deity, Canaanite god that they're worshiping in the northern kingdom. He ends up marrying a Phoenician who is from the line of Cana, and her name is Jezebel. And Jezebel continues to push the same agenda. Well, it's sweet that you guys worship Yahweh. He did bring you out of Egypt. Fantastic. But if you want your land to grow, if you want good things, you should worship Baal. And let's add Asherah to it. Asherah is the mother of Baal. And things start to get really weird here. Now, culturally speaking, and around this area, this has been happening for a long time. So, uh, I'm sharing it to you like this is a new development, but it's, it's not been. It's just not been a practice of, of Israel at times. So this is what happens. In the worship of Baal, they, they would say things like, whatever we want Baal to do, we have to show him we're serious. So we have to do it. To get Baal's attention, we need to do what we want Baal to do. 
So if we want to harvest, then we want the best fruit. We need to give him our best fruit. Now that sounds nice, but the way that they practically went about doing that was through sacrifices. And so they would sacrifice, and ultimately bulls were the primary sacrifice to Baal, at least for a time. And then they said, you know what would be a better sacrifice? Our kids. That is really the fulfillment of our fruit. If we really want Baal to honor our land, to give us good things, all things, then we need to be all in. And one way we can be all in is to give Baal our children to sacrifice. And that's what happened in the northern kingdom. And there was a lot of sacrificing. And consequently, things grew. Fruit was good. The land was green. And then they added Asherah to it, who was also this goddess of uh, fertility. And um, So how do you worship that? Well, this is how they said it. They said, we want... Baal and Asherah to come together, and we want the fullness of everything they have, so we need to be willing to give everything we have to Baal and Asherah, and then temple prostitution began to take place, where the male represented Baal, the female represented Asherah, and they would come together, and it was this symbolic gesture of saying, we want the full fruit of both of these gods together. And in the northern kingdom... It was green, and there was rain, and they celebrated it. And these people who worshipped Yahweh seemed to be irrelevant. And the stream seemed to be carrying them down. And there was hopelessness, and there was frustration, and there was disaster. And then, and then, Hiel comes to life. (laughs) Well, Hiel is a friend of Ahab. And Hiel decides, you know what? There is an area that needs to be addressed. And in real estate, location, 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 there is this main road that goes right by this place that no one is using. It's been destroyed for a long time. I don't know why anyone wouldn't just redevelop it. Let's get in there. Let's redevelop it. That's what they did. And Jericho was refounded. And Hiel lost his children. Just like Joshua said centuries before. Now, in uh, Judaism, the Talmud talks about this this connection that has occurred uh, during this time. So the Talmud is really a commentary on these scriptures, and it happened after the fact. So we don't know if it really happened or if these are oral traditions that got written down later. and, And yeah, they did happen. We're not really sure, to be honest with you, but this is what is being stated. And that is that Elijah and Ahab and Hiel are all together. And Ahab says to Elijah, guess what? I know that you think that this happened to my friend because he rebuilt Jericho. But that's not the case. Because someone greater than Joshua is Moses. And Moses said we shouldn't have idols. But I've brought idols in everywhere. And our land is growing, and it's green, and it's better than it's ever been. So, fooey on you. Again, that's my paraphrase. That's not the way that it turned. That's not the way that it's written in the Talmud. So, so what happens, though, is that Elijah has a response to that. And that's, that's where we pick it up. Now, 
uh, again, whether that peace happened or not, we're not, you know, maybe, maybe not. But what we do know is that there is this movement uh, of God in this place where uh, bad things have happened. And the people of God are being swept away and they need to get on this boat. And Elijah is going to show them how to get on this ship. And this ship is worship, and this worship is going to be real, and it's going to be authentic, and it's going to cost him everything. And that's what happens when you get on that ship. And that's the call. And so we're in 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, verse 1 is where we're going to pick it up. And by the way, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. Um, use your Bibles. You can fact check us. That's a good thing to do. Um, not that we're, you know, want to trick you or anything like that, but I think it gives us more courage as we go, oh, hey, they're saying the same thing that's written here. Or, hey, Kenny, uh, nope. <laughs> you know, you, you, you should do that. Underline things. Highlight things. Write notes off to the side. Don't mark anything out. That's really bad. Don't ever do that. Underline, highlight. That's good. So uh, a couple of things just as we get into this additionally that might be important, and that's the meaning of names. So Ahab means uncle. It's a it's a father's brother, and so uh, you know. Well, that's nice, but why does that matter? Well, maybe it matters because of the practical nature of Ahab. And and I'm I, this is I'm stepping away from the pulpit. This is me uh, suggesting something. Maybe it's like Ahab is kind of like dad, but not really dad, right? He, he's the fun uncle. He's that guy that's like whatever it's going to take to have the good things that I want without having to do the hard things that we need to do to really get the good things, I want to do the fun things. That's Ahab. Ahab marries Jezebel, and Jezebel means chaste, like pure. That's what it means. Uh, Now, for sure, that's her name. Uh, I think that there's a little bit of irony in that. It's like when someone's really tall and you nickname them Shorty. Jezebel being chased is she's not really that way uh, because she has been bringing in this type of sacrifice where we offer our children and uh, and the promiscuity that occurred through the temple prostitution and worship of Asherah. So that is what has happened. That is the cultural sweep that has occurred, and that's where we pick it up. And I'm just going to go slowly through this and talk about it as we go. Now, Elijah the Tishbite. Stop there. Elijah is a prophet in the Old Testament. The idea of a prophet is this uh, office of God. You had to have 100% accuracy in this sort of thing. If you didn't, you could be stoned. That's bad. Well, I'm 99%. Nope, you need to be 100% or else. That's the deal. The office of prophet, though, has to do two things. Well, not necessarily two things, but two things could be involved. It always is about proclaiming God's word. Always, always, always. That happens in forth telling. So I'm going to present God's word. I'm going to forth tell it. Right, So we could say that in a way what we do on the weekends is forth-telling. We're taking God's word and we're proclaiming it. We, we could say that. And then there's another element, and that is foretelling. Foretelling isn't always necessary in the office of prophecy, but it, it could be, and it often was. And that would be talking about future events. Make sense so far? Future events. So that's what happens in the office of a, 
of the prophet. In the New Testament, it seems to be a lot more of the foretelling than foretelling, but that's, that's the reality of the position. Elijah. Don't, don't miss this. Elijah stands uh, in a position that is unique. Everyone else is about Baal and Asherah worship. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. My God. Now, this is significant. I think especially in the context where most things were understood corporately, this is my God. So Baal can be your God, but Yahweh is my God. He's mine. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to choose him. I'm going to do what everyone else isn't going to do. And even in these places where they're taking uh, Yahweh and Asherah, and by the way, they found evidence archaeologically that that has happened, that occurred at least in parts of ancient Israel, where they were worshiping both as if they were married. That's called syncretism, right? You're, You're taking more than one religion and you're infusing it with another. Elijah's like, no, that's not how it is. Yahweh, this God of covenant, is my God. I'm going to follow him. It's dynamically different. The Tishbite of Tishbe. Now, as far as I know, and as far as I could tell, they haven't found Tishbe yet, but they probably will. I assume they will. Here is an interesting piece, though. The word Tishbe means captivity. (laughs) So there is Elijah in captivity. And that is exactly how he felt. I just want to honor God. I just want to do what God's called me to do. I just want to follow him. I want to honor him. I want to be godly in my demeanor and in the things that are happening. But this world around me that's trying to sweep me into their, uh, their way of doing things, that's really trying to suck the life out of me, this, this culture that has taken me down that path, uh, I feel captive. And so what's he do? Keep in mind that this is on the heels of Hiel and Hiel rebuilding Jericho and Hiel experiencing the curse of rebuilding Jericho and that Ahab is saying, Baal is sending us good things. Baal's job is to send rain. That's one of his primary purposes. I'm going to send rain to the land. So, fruit. Uh, the, the, the fruit that comes from that rain is, ah, thank you, Baal. That's how they thought. This is where we pick it up. So Elijah said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Did you catch that? The Lord, Yahweh, is my God. Not Baal, the one that's supposed to send the rain, uh, he can't. And I'm going to tell you why. Because God has given me this word to give to you. It's not going to happen until I say so. This representative of God who's speaking out God's word. Make sense so far? Are you with me? Continuing on. And the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Uh, which is east of the Jordan, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So, uh, let's see. 
Well, let's just pause there for a second. So he's getting fed by ravens. It's kind of an interesting thing. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. An obvious sign that God has been at work. Don't miss what has happened. This, so Israel comes into the land to bring light and chase away the darkness, which is represented by these deity, Baal, Asher, and others. But they're bringing it back. They're bringing that stuff back into the land. Like, okay, well, you can get Cana out of the land, but not really out of the people. Like, that's the, that's the mentality here. And Jezebel and Ahab, they're at work. They're trying to get it done. Elijah, this man of God, sees God at work with Hillel. And, and in that place, he says, wait a minute. Let's see what God is doing. Let's join God. Let's get on this ship, this worship, and with real authentic worship, let's live our lives that are true and good to him because Baal has no power in this place and Baal is not the one who provides the rain and you have misunderstood your blessings. Those blessings have come from the Lord and not Baal and just to prove it, just to get your attention, let's look at this. This land is not going to get any dew, any water on it until I give my word. And we know that's three and a half years just to get their attention. And there are people who are starting to gather and collect. Now, the juxtaposition here is of God and Baal, right? Like, God loves life. We can make the argument that the, the reason we have even the Ten Commandments is to extend life to us. When we see that God wants us to have life, that he gives freedom to the children of Israel as they follow him out of slavery and into the promised land, we see that extension of life. Like that is what God does. In the New Testament, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. God is about life and what's to extend life. And in this place where they're saying, hey, let's offer our children... That is juxtaposed to a God who says, I love your children. I love from the youngest to the oldest, and I care about life in a way that Baal can't. Those blessings are misunderstood, and those blessings don't come from Baal. They come from God. And Elijah is standing in that gap. Asherah is this deity who there is this... um, Uh, this temple prostitution, this sexual deviation of worship, and they call it good. And God says, no, I I have things perfectly planned where sexuality is supposed to be and how it is supposed to look, and I care for that, and I want it to be good and extend life, and what is happening here is spreading of diseases, not just physical, but mental as well, and that is not okay. And God stands in juxtaposition of Asherah and says, I have a plan in this place. And Elijah is in the gap, and that's what we see in this place. How about you? How are you doing in this gap? Do you feel like you're being swept away by the culture and like you're going to drown? Do you feel like, oh, I can't make a difference? Well, maybe God's at work. And maybe in that place where God is at work, we can get our footing. And in that place where we can get our footing, 
we can stand with Christ. I, I, I'm going to say something. I said this in the last uh, uh, service, and I'll say it here too. And my intention is not to be political, but rather this is a, a, commentary, a social commentary based on a political event, and that is the presidential debate. Um, I, I, I saw two people arguing, cutting each other off. It was, it was, I didn't like it. I'll just tell you, I didn't like it. I didn't like the way that played out. And as I was getting frustrating at the, frustrated at those two, I realized, wait a minute, we live in a representative democracy. They represent us. And then it occurred to me, as I was looking at social media, they don't represent us. They reflect us. As a culture. Now, maybe that's not true for you. If it's not true for you, thank you for being a good steward. But as a culture, there is this idea of, let's just wait for them to post that, and then let's... You know, we're going to bust chops with this one, the zinger, right? I'm going to get him. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And this is a place where we can shine our light. We can look different than the world. Hey, they might say, I don't like you. I don't, I don't appreciate you. Cool. I love you. Jesus died for you. He died for me. I love you. Like, that is a difference that we can make in the place that we're in, and it looks so much different than this cultural river that is trying to uh, wash us away, knock us off of our boats. But it's time to get on on the ship. And getting on this ship is uh, really about worship, being real and authentic before God. That's what Elijah does. Just an ordinary person, but an extraordinary God. And I just got to say, that God is no less extraordinary today. <laughs> He's still big. He's still big. He still loves people. He still wants to extend life. He still wants the purity and holiness in marriage. He's still that same God. And the blessings that we may be thinking is coming from something different is only found in Christ. All good things come from God. And that's the reality of the situation that we're in. So what will it mean for you? What will it mean for you? We're going to walk through just a few faith experiments. And these are things I want to encourage you to grab a hold of. Do one of these. Do all of these. It's fine. Try something. What I don't want to do is just be hearers of the word. And this is a challenge in my faith. Like I'm offering it to you, but I'm receiving it too, just so you know. This is the first one. Pray for your leaders. Well, who are your leaders? They're the people in your home. They're the people in your community. They're the people at your work. They're the people in your government. It's so easy to complain and be frustrated at them. Like, it's so easy. Let's pray. Watch and see what happens. I think maybe that that is a part of being on God's ship, this worship. Watch and see what he does. Pray for our leaders. Make a point this week. Hey, all week, I am going to pray for the leaders in my life. Whoever those leaders are, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's people at work, a boss at work, maybe it, like whoever it is, let's just pray for them. Next, memorize James 5.17. So the passage that we did earlier, Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Memorize that. Uh, see how that just kind of infuses in this discussion that we're having. Thirdly, write out your testimony. This is one of my favorites. I, I love the written word. I just love it. And writing out our testimony 
is so good. It's so helpful. It brings clarity in our thoughts because no doubt you have the opportunity to talk about it. A friend of mine, he would always write out his testimony and his Christmas cards that he gave out to people. And it was just like that was a cool way to get his word out, get the word out. And it's a simple uh, outline that you can use. What was life like before Christ? You don't have to flesh that out too much. But what was it like before Christ? What was the crisis that occurred that got your attention? And what was life like after you came to Christ? Easy outline. Fourth, what is your next step of faith? Maybe it's salvation. Perhaps it's like as I was talking today, you said, I've never really gotten on that ship. I don't really know what you're talking about. Like I attend church sometimes, but Jesus doesn't really impact my week. And I... Mm, it sounds like you mean something more than what I've been living. Can we talk? Yes, let's talk. Let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about what that might mean. Let's, let's engage in that. Maybe God has something for you. Maybe it's baptism. You're saying, yep, I, I prayed to receive Jesus whenever, but my next step is baptism. Let's do it. I, I think there's one coming up. If you're like, ah, I want one before then. Maybe your bathtub's deep enough. I don't know. Let's try it. Let's do something. Let's not have excuses. Let's get her done. <laughs> maybe it's spiritual discipline. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's fasting or memorizing scripture. Or maybe it's uh, a time of silence and being alone. Maybe, maybe it's something like that. Consider what is a spiritual discipline that you can engage in in this faith experiment. I believe this, that... Um, we are in a crossroads, just culturally, where, where we stand in the United States. And, and, and what I mean by that is um, we get this opportunity to shine like lights. We are dynamically different than the culture around us. It doesn't make us better, but it sure reminds us that we serve an extraordinary God who can save a wretch like me. That's a powerful thing, you guys. So let's see what God will do. Um, the worship team's going to come, and I'm going to ask something a little different, and I didn't prep our prayer ministers, but prayer ministers, those of you who are in here, if you would be willing to kind of fan out during this last song, and if you need prayer during this last song, why don't you come forward and, and, and just spend a few moments in prayer as you're getting your heart right. Thank you. I'm sorry for the change up, but I think we should do that, so that's what we're going to do. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we love you, and we do thank you. We praise you, God, because you are good all the time. And Lord, this, oh, this culture is sweeping us away and reminds me a lot of Cana. But it reminds me even more of how much we need you. And so, Father, I want to get on your ship again today. And I want to sail this river of life in you. Lord, and I, I think others want to join me there. And so I ask, Almighty God, that in just in a real way, you would bring your, your life and your light, your purity and your innocence back to your people, and that we would be able to share it and bring others on board for your good glory. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship?